0: doody little buckaroo to you like animals we sure do so come on down to the weekly meeting of the animal fan club
1: coo-coo, coo-coo. the coo-coo clock is proclaiming that it's creature o'clock so ring that buzzer it sounds like a lion roar Rawr. and open the door to join us for the 49th meeting of the animal fan club.
0: I'm a sheet of aphid repellent reflective mesh, Mike.
1: And I'm just a blobfish trying to live my damn life, Meredith.
0: We meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station. Arf! Arf! To talk about our favorite animals.
1: While we lack in expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow! So, saddle up that miniature horse, hold it on tight for the furriest, Finfilled filled and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom and amelia yay yay
0: we're back meredith
1: we're back in the d station the, the dalmatian d
0: station.
1: <laughs> the dalmatian station,
0: d station.
1: <laughs> d i feel like we're recording like super early and we're <laughs> yeah, not
0: it's definitely not well like you said when we were getting set up meredith not to throw open the barn doors it's fine I don't know what it is but it's this is a Sunday morning that we're recording it
1: it's decidedly fall here oh it sure is I'm wearing my slippers that have just like busts of border collies all over them (laughs) (laughs)
0: Nice. I'm wearing my house Crocs.
1: We both have animal-themed footwear on.
0: Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Well, how was your week in animals?
1: Generally, fine. I was seeing, after you talked about kind of stubborn dogs in a previous episode, I feel like I was seeing a lot of those, just those dogs that, you know, they're like, the owner's not really paying attention, and they're just walking, and then all of a sudden the dog will just sit. Uh
0: (laughs) Uh-huh.
1: Be like, nope. Not going any further. Yeah. But then, yesterday, in Central Park, I got to see friends of the podcast, Jesse, the seahorse, and his doggy Benji. I'd actually never met Benji in real life.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: And I was just freaking over the moon. That dog is, one, just so gorgeous and so full of personality. But I got so ridiculously excited because... We were kind of traversing the park, like four of us, and Benji. But Benji was like on the leash, but always out in front. And you know how most dogs just kind of like walk in a straight line with the owner? Not Benji. Benji is like weaving back and forth, always turning around to make sure we're behind him. And at first I was just kind of like, that's interesting. But then I was like, no, he's a herding dog. He's herding us.
0: He sure is.
1: He's just like kind of outlining the perimeter kind of protecting the front end of the herd and always checking back to make sure the herd's still with him. It was like the cutest thing. I was over the moon about it.
0: (laughs) I have to say that no dog is more perfect for Jesse than one that checks the front end of the herd. (laughs) Well, I've always thought that the two of them were really cute together, Jesse and Benji, because Jesse has a lot of energy,
1: and so does Benjino.
0: <laughs> so does Benjino, <laughs> exactly. Like it's hard to keep up with Jesse, but I think Jesse has to keep up with Benji.
1: Yes, I, w- I was definitely some of that was happening. I think Benji was. Well, I felt bad because like Benji was kind of like chilled out, but then when I got there, I was just like, "Oh my god, I'm Benji's and Benji in the flesh!" <laughs> so I think it just like amplified all the energy in the, the park space and it was just i think that kind of sent benji over a little bit
0: uh-huh because
1: there's still a lot of barking and excited dog energy yeah displayed by both him and me
0: <laughs> yeah i love that
1: how was your week at animals mike
0: well there's a lot to report i mean i was When last we spoke, I was just in Massachusetts. I was just getting to Massachusetts. And after we spoke, we went to the farm ice cream stand where you could buy ice cream and then eat it while looking at goats.
1: Heaven.
0: I got a cool face mask with cows on it.
1: Fun.
0: I can confirm that Maisie's just kind of a shit cat, kind of a mean-spirited cat right now. No, Although I get it. And then I did see Maisie getting outside and what Molly does is she has this leash with like a rope tied onto the end of it Yeah, that ends up being about 20 feet long. And (laughs) so she just kind of lets the cat out with that so that if she needs to catch the cat, she can do it from a distance of 20 feet. Right. You know? Yeah. So it's much easier to control the kitty. But yeah, that's an outdoor cat now for sure. It's hard to bring an outdoor cat inside.
1: It really is. Yeah, it's... You got to kind of commit to one or the other, but you can't really go back. Yeah. It's like adding salt to food. You can't take it out once it's in. Exactly. But reverse that in terms of a cat. Yeah. <laughs> you can't put it in once it's out.
0: Speaking of getting out, we were in the woods and spent quite some time in the woods hiking. And I was sort of living my digitigrade, grade fantasy as I was climbing up and down the mountain. And I found that I really liked being in sort of a digitigrade position, like up on my toes. But the full out like on point grade thing is just still so upsetting. Like, I don't know how they do it.
1: Especially those mountain goats that can like essentially like hang out on just like the most like what is like a two centimeter outcropping from like a sheer rock face. I know. And they're on their like little toesy woesies. How do they do it?
0: I don't have any answers,
1: Meredith. <laughs> oh, man.
0: Well, should we get into it?
1: I think we should.
0: Who's going first today? We've subverted our normal system. I do you mean, do we wanna... first, do want me to go first? I'll go
1: first if we want to just like be able to stay on track.
0: Sure. Like get back on it. Yeah. All right. That works for me. Okay, great. Well, I guess uh, then I should really stretch here so I can kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer. Yeah. Ready? Okay. Taxana you. Texana, we. a who?
1: Texana, me. Kingdom. Animalia. No surprise there. Phylum. Chordata. That means they have a spine. Good. Class. Aves. This bird has a massive wingspan. Order. Cathartiforms. Or are they excipitripiforms? Family. <laughs> Cathartidae. New world vultures. Genus. Cathartis. Greek for purifier. Species. Cathartis aura. They will always win in a scavenger hunt. It's the turkey vulture.
0: That was pretty thrilling, Meredith.
1: The taxonomy cheer is always a, um, that ball starts rolling and you just gotta keep rolling with it. So I definitely butchered one of these words, I know for a fact, in the taxonomy cheer. So I'll fix it when we go through tax facts. But I wanted to do like, I'm trying to do spooky animals for spooky October. So I went with the turkey vulture because it is a bird that's often associated with death because of the way they kind of hang around waiting for things to die. But as we will see, they don't ever commit death.
0: (laughs) They don't actually commit the death. They
1: don't kill. They don't kill their prey. Yeah. They only benefit off of prey that's already died. So we'll talk about some of the nuance of all of this, but yeah, spooky Turkey vultures for spooky October. So we'll go through some quick tax facts the most interesting of which, I think, so we know Kingdom Animalia, Phylum Chordata, Class Aves, so we're talking birds. It did occur to me that, you know, we always say like, oh, pretty little birdie. Referring to a turkey vulture as a birdie is like a really funny thing to me.
0: It's like le grand. <laughs> yeah.
1: Le grand. Yeah, birdie is like a diminutive thing. and then. But I do love, it just seems like such a, um, I don't know, contradiction of terms. <laughs> oh, look at that pretty little birdie over there. And it's like a turkey vulture, like tearing into a cow's stomach. Halloween, y'all. So order. So I listed cathartiforms, but then I said, or are they? Okay. Accipitriforms, Accipitriforms, Because there is some controversy or some confusion, I guess, over where, what order the, these vultures belong in and more specifically new world vultures. So, New World Vultures is going to be referring to vultures that live in North, Central, and South America, as opposed to the Old World Vultures that we would associate with, like, Africa or even Europe and Asia. Uh-huh. So, we've got this battle between—I wish these words were easier—Cathartiforms or Accipitriforms. So, the Old World Vultures are solidly in the Accipitriform order. But according to the South American Classification Committee,
0: you mean SAC?
1: SAC, yes, SAC. <laughs> they think that the New World vultures should have their own order, as opposed to being classified not only with the Old World vultures, jeez, but other diurnal birds of prey, so like hawks, eagles, and kites. Kites, kites, the birds, birds of prey.
0: Unfamiliar. Mm-hmm.
1: I sense another bird (laughs) episode coming up.
0: Going to put a pin in that.
1: But I love that they make the distinction of diurnal birds of prey. So it's like no owls allowed. Mm -mm.
0: It's an owl free zone.
1: Yeah. Take those hoots elsewhere. So I don't know. I'm not sure like if I want to go according to the SAC classification or some of the other classification committees that I didn't list here, nor do I remember off the top of my head. But there's like three major ones. There's like a North American one, an international one, and a South American one involved in this Uh fray, in this bird fracas. Sure. Do with that what you will. Okay, so moving down into family, it contains five genera and seven species. So I think the family is New World Vultures. Yes. And then the genus is kind of even more specific within New World Vultures. It contains three species that primarily live in North, Central, and South America, like we said. So the turkey vulture, the lesser yellow-headed vulture, and the greater yellow-headed vulture. (laughs) So those are the ones in the genus cathartis, which means in Greek, purifier, which is really interesting because, especially when you get into like folklore and kind of how different cultures treat and view the turkey vulture. So a lot of Native American tribes, for instance, Have a negative view of the turkey vulture given its proximity to death and kind of eating things that are in a state of decay. Sure. Versus like the Greeks see them as kind of this mystical purification vessel because they kind of, they're able to rid the earth of the death and the decay and still kind of make new life out of it. Uh huh. Yeah. So it's just kind of two different sides of a coin. So now we're fully into the species of cathartis aura. So the turkey vulture. And I like doing birds that I think we can see, um, especially in the United States, kind of see anywhere. So we can find these pretty much all over the United States, especially in the warmer months. Um, And many of them will migrate down to South America in the colder months. Sure. Pretty much any time I'm driving long distances, going across more open areas, you always see them flying around. And if you're really lucky and there's some roadkill by the side of the road, you'll see them kind of hopping around, feeding on that roadkill. But we'll talk more about that.
0: Yeah, I feel like I've seen them all over the country. Oh,
1: yeah, they that's, yeah, exactly. They are all over the country. Like I said, they actually don't, really kill their own prey. They only benefit off of eating newly decaying prey. And they don't like things that are at the point of like putrefaction, not that like full level of decomposition, but like newly just starting to decay prey. And they're able to actually smell that prey much better. Like most birds don't have very good sense of smell, but the olfactory system in the um, turkey vulture is actually very large and very developed. And so they're able to pick up on this scent pretty much right away. Awesome. And kind of get down there. That's great. Yeah, good for them. And so they kind of, because they're primarily eating dead carrion, they're very important ecologically because they dispose of this stuff and these decaying bodies, be they like cows or skunks or whatever, even dead fish, they can act as kind of like disease hotspots. So it's beneficial for pretty much... All the creatures to not have these like sick mounds of bacteria essentially just laying around everywhere. Right. Yeah. Nobody wants that. (laughs) No. Get Get rid of of that. Oh, so this is fun. This is a little example of some creature cooperation, which I think is really cute. Like I said, vultures, they don't, the turkey vultures don't kill their own food. So for that reason, they don't really have very strong beaks. Like their beaks are kind of short. And they don't have very good graspy talons, and their talons aren't very sharp. So they actually will kind of rely on other birds to do, like, the initial tear into the flesh. Or they have to wait for the flesh to soften. So they kind of work in conjunction, depending on where you are in the United States, with other birds of prey, which I like to call B.O.P. You down with B.O.P.?
0: Yeah, you know me.
1: Yeah, you smell meat. Squawk, Squawk! 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 So they'll work with other species like black vultures and condors. So black vultures and condors, they don't have that same sense of smell, but they know that the turkey vultures do. So they will follow the turkey vultures to the food and then the turkey vultures kind of stand back and let them do the initial tearing open of the carcass and then they're able to get in there. So it's just this kind of like mutual dependence of species. Like they work together, which is like... Oh my gosh, cute. So in terms of distribution, like I said, they're all over North, Central, and South America. They like fairly open areas, pretty much anything that isn't really like heavily forested. It says they're very gregarious, (laughs) which, cool. I guess they like to hang out in groups. They roost in groups in leafless trees and on rocks and even up in some man-made like cell phone towers or... Water towers, things like that. Group roost. I love a group roost.
0: It's like a Bible study group, but it's a roost group. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I know Timmy. He's in my roost group.
1: Birdie Bible study. So in terms of their appearance, this is probably my favorite part because they are actually pretty goofy looking, which I've always really loved about turkey vultures. So they actually have a wingspan of five to six feet. So they could have a wingspan that's taller than that's like wider than I am long. I guess. Because I'm like five six five seven, Uh-huh. And so I could fit. I could easily be enveloped in the wings of a turkey vulture. I'd fit right in there. And
0: I would, you said six feet, I would be a little bit taller. Yeah. So that would be, we've done this before. Like if the vulture's wingtip was at my toes. Yes. Then the other wingtip would be just like tickling my nose.
1: <laughs> yes. And what's funny is our wingtips actually kind of look like fingers. It's called their flight feathers. So it's not like a smooth, so when they're in flight, you can like see their feathers or you see more up close. It's going to be kind of like ragged at the ends of the wingtips because the feathers are kind of, you can just see the individual flight feathers and they kind of resemble like fingers almost, which is kind of fun. I do love the image of a turkey vulture tickling your nose.
0: So do I.
1: So there's limited sexual dimorphism, so the... The males and the females are going to be generally the same size. They're going to generally look the same. So their bodies have these kind of brownish, blackish feathers on their body. Um, their flight feathers, kind of their finger feathers, like I mentioned, are more silvery gray. And then the part I love is that they just look like they have really tiny heads on these hulking bird bodies. And they're like these small little featherless red heads. <laughs> so they look kind of scary, I will say. Uh huh. But... They have also, like, kind of little eyelashes as well. So I was watching some YouTube videos of them up close with, like, different, like, bird keepers and bird experts. And they actually just look really kind of sweet with their eyelashes. I think it really kind of diminishes their scary appearance. They just look sweet. I don't know. Maybe that's just me.
0: Would a bird expert be called a bird spurt?
1: Yes. No doubt. Cool. So they've got, like I mentioned, these small little beaks. They're not very great at, like tearing and stuff like that, like other birds of prey, raptors are. And then I love this, too. So they've got their legs and feet are pink, but they often appear white because they like to poop all over their own legs as a means of cooling off.
0: Bold strategy.
1: I know, right? So often you'll see, and I love these pictures that I've seen of many different species of vultures, but it's called the heraldic stance. So essentially they kind of stand on the ground. And they kind of lift their wings up slightly. It almost looks like they're, like, lifting up their skirts to kind of show you, like, daintily what lies beneath. Uh Uh-huh. And then that's when you can see their legs. And it almost... (laughs) They don't have feathers on their legs. So that almost looks like... Or the feathers do start. It looks like they're wearing pants. (laughs) It's really cute. But in this heraldic stance, this they can do to either cool off or warm up or to dry off their wings if they're wet, like, after a rainy period. Or... It's a bake-off bacteria. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) So, some more fun grossness. So, they have few natural predators, but when they are threatened, their main defense is essentially to regurgitate partially digested food, which we know is also, like, partially decayed food when they're eating it. So, you can imagine that this smells wonderful. So it's the smell. It's like this foul-smelling vomit that they use to kind of repel any sort of predators. And then oftentimes, they try to take off in flight away from a predator. But before they do that, like say they just ate a big meal, they have to empty their crop. So that's kind of that like storage zone. It's kind of part of the esophagus. and It's like a storage zone pre-digestion. Yep. So they empty their, they purge their crops.
0: Purge your crop
1: that purge your crop in order to flee a predator. But I also love the fact that, like, okay, so if you see them on the side of the road and you see them moving, you know they don't, like, traverse the ground very well. They kind of have these weird, like, loping hops. But they also have a really ty- hard time taking flight as well.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I'm
1: just imagining this, like, threatened turkey vulture who, like, pukes and then starts hopping around and has a really hard time, like, struggling to get into the air. It just... These creatures, they seem so threatening, but at the same time, they're just kind of doofy.
0: They're so doofy.
1: (laughs) But then they've got those eyelashes. It's like, oh, I can't. So as far as getting, once they are in the air, they um, rely on what are called thermals. These rising hot columns of warm air. So birds, many birds of prey actually utilize thermals too. They essentially kind of ride ride them right to the top.
0: <laughs> yeah it just it's a way of getting higher without expending energy
1: Yes exactly so once they're up in the air and soaring they they don't really have to flap much and this is one of the ways you can identify a turkey vulture in the air so because of the way their wings they're not their wings aren't they aren't held straight across they're kind they're held up a little bit in a V shape and because of this V shape they look like they're kind of unstable in the air they look like they're gonna like wobble and fall it looks like they're having a hard time like controlling themselves against the wind but that's just because of their wing shape i think in my bird of prey raptor webinar that i attended a few weeks ago they said that turkey vultures are the only ones you'll ever see kind of wobbling midair while they're soaring
0: oh you've reminded me i forgot to go to this alpaca thing this (gasps) alpaca meet and greet on friday i fucking forgot
1: oh no (laughs) who was hosting that
0: I don't know, something, my cousin was involved somehow.
1: An alpaca meat and grain. Well, I hope there will be another one. You can come back and report on it.
0: Myself also.
1: Yeah, so if you see a wobbly bird, a big wobbly bird in the sky, chances are it's probably a turkey vulture. Okay, just a few more things um, that I thought were funny. Courtship rituals include forming a circle, like a bunch of them will get in a circle, where they spread their wings, so they get kind of into that heraldic stance, and they kind of hop around in that circle. Like they hop along the perimeter. <laughs> I want to see that in real life.
0: Heraltic.
1: Heraldic. And then in the sky, I think when they're, two of them have paired off, they do, they'll fly kind of close together, but then they'll kind of do these twists and turns and dives within the air as well. So egg broods are typically two, but sometimes there's one, and rarely there are three. But these eggs, there's no nest. They're born onto the cold-ass ground. But they are cared for by both mommy and daddy. And then also they are fed by both mommy and daddy via, you guessed it, regurgitation. Barf, barf. Cute. So I like this fact too. Another thing I would love to see. Chicks are probably the most vulnerable of the turkey vultures. Like the nests will be raided by like foxes or badgers, all kinds of those weasel things, but the chicks defend themselves in the nest by hissing and also, you guessed it, regurgitating. Gross. And also, I love the turkey vultures. They don't have like a, I think it was called a syrinx. It's like related to like a larynx, but they don't have the ability to like chirp or do normal bird tweety things or squawk. They can only hiss and grunt. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and then, um, I also love this, and this kind of ties into our fun like Halloweeniness. You know I love Terms of Venery. So a group of turkey vultures, while they're feeding, it's called a wake. So, kind of like the wake of a funeral. Uh-huh. So the people attending the carrion funeral, or they're also called a committee, which I think is fun. On Urban Dictionary, a turkey vulture is a cougar who has grown... Older than cougar status. (laughs) So they have to feed on like, I guess, the less desirables as opposed Uh to like the tender cubs that the normal cougar wants to feed upon. Sure. So do with that information what you will.
0: I'm going to store it away for later.
1: So that's about it for my turkey vulture presentation. But I'm pretty into them. I think they're pretty cool.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think they sound incredible.
1: Yeah, and they get kind of a bad rap because of their association with death that often, like, farmers will view them as a threat because they often hang out with other creatures, like I said, like black vultures who actually do. If an animal is close to death, black vultures aren't afraid to, like, kind of push it over the edge, help them along. Um, whereas, like, turkey vultures, are, they're not a threat to animals that are living. They're not a threat to pets. They're not a threat to livestock. So, unfortunately, they get they get this bad rap but really they're just there to purify purify the earth.
0: Well, and thank God for that.
1: Yeah, we need we need the purifiers. It's like the bottom feeders of the ocean. We need them. Here here. God's vacuums.
0: Um, well that's great, Meredith. Yeah. I guess this is a great time to take a breath. For sure. Then.
1: Turkey vulture hiss so excited for Halloween. As a cat, I'm always ready for a spooky occasion.
0: Well, as a dog, I don't like to celebrate Halloween because chocolate is toxic to us canines, so it's always a bust.
1: Well, you certainly haven't heard about Brand Clubby's new Paw Bars, Dog Safe Chocolate.
0: Aroo! Dog Safe Chocolate? Tell me more!
1: Brand Clubby has partnered with Central America's most creative chocolatier, Axel Axel Oh
0: my god! A choco celeb par excellence.
1: They've developed a series of bite-sized treats.
0: Treats? Treats? Did somebody say treats?
1: (laughs) That's a perfect size for good dogs of all gender expressions. (laughs) Well, we can all see that this pooch is pumped. (laughs) Use code BOWWOWBITES15 for 15% at checkout when purchasing through Brand Clubby's always reliable web portal. Oh. Me wow!
0: Stuffed animal memories are the best kind of memories. Teddy bears, cows, and pow puppies. Would you tell us, please?
1: Well, we're back. It's Stuffed Animal Memories, if we didn't pick that up already.
0: Yay! (laughs) Yay. We're
1: back.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this is not an expose on brand clubby music production techniques. This is Stuffed Animal Memories.
1: Right, exactly. So what do you have, Mike?
0: Well, this is a very specific stuffed animal that I had and it was a Disney product and it was the tiger from the Aladdin movie, Raja. And it was one of those stuffed animals where it's like a fully rendered plasticky, rubbery head. Yes. And then a stuffed body.
1: Oh my gosh, mine has the same thing. Really? The one I chose. I'm so glad you brought this cause this weird oh my 90s God trend and stuffed animals up this is perfect
0: so yeah it was like an early 90s thing and my memory of it is just that it like hurt my teeth and (laughs) that it was this glorious stuffed animal but because of this hard plastic rubbery part that it caused some sort of bodily damage to me you know
1: that's so weird it's just weird that those existed is what I mean right
0: I feel like, I don't know that they've gone away, though. I feel like as somebody who's been in lots of the malls across America, that I've been through a lot of the Disney stores in the malls across America. Yes. And I feel like they're still around, but maybe not with the same, like, vim and vigor that they have been previously, you know?
1: Yeah, I hope not. I would think, see, stuffed animals, you want them to be cuddly and soft. And you want them to be, like, to be able to go to bed with you. They're like... You know, you don't want to worry about, like, chipping your tooth on your 101 Dalmatian stuffed animal in the wee hours of the morning.
0: I mean, I agree with that, Meredith. And I'll go a little bit further. I'll go a little bit further and say that, you know, when I was a kid, I would walk into the these stores and see the giant, like, mound, mountain of stuffed animal display. Ugh, and I would heaven. think, like, I just want to live there. Like, I want to crawl inside and just fall asleep surrounded by all these wonderful stuffed animals but with these hard plastic rubber head creatures <laughs> or s- perhaps stuffed creatures, that it would be a bit of a princess and a pea situation.
1: Yeah.
0: I think that sleeping in this sort of pile of stuffed animals with these rubber heads and everything would not be as comfortable as, say, like a sleep number bed.
1: <laughs> no. I feel like animal, stuffed animals should have a sleep number. It's
0: a fish position. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> ding, ding, ding. But yeah, that's what I've been thinking about in terms of my reflections upon stuffed animals, was this sort of, I don't know if it's outdated. I feel like they're still around a little bit, but maybe not mm-hmm. in the same level of full force. I think that stuffed animal trends have moved in a different direction, which I'm i would here for.
1: Yeah, I would hope so. I'd hope they'd all have like sleep considerations. Myself also. Taken into account. Yeah, so it's funny that you went this kind of like 90s hard stuffed animal face route because I had the same thing. And this was like, It was kind of a gimmicky stuffed animal unlike So, I think, like, the ones I would really love, the ones I would get, like, at the zoo gift shop that were, you know, like, a really cute giant anteater or something. Like, the only gimmick is that it's, like, a very specific animal. But this one, it was called Kitty Surprise. And there was also a Puppy Surprise. But it was just this, like, garish, I don't know, like, cat that had, like, a hard face, again... Like you were saying, which I remember. And now looking back, it's like kind of terrifying because it was almost like this cat had like cats the musical kind of makeup on. I remember her having like intense eyelashes and all kinds of shit. Not a realistic looking cat. And I had the white one because I loved white stuffed cats. Uh But there was one that's like orange and another one that was like hot pink, whatever. But it was called Kitty Surprise because she had this like... (laughs) On the underside of her belly, it was like Velcro, it was like a pouch that was like Velcroed shut. And you like undo the Velcro, like open up her gut, essentially. And then inside are these like little tiny kittens. And they were like the body was fabric, but again, the whole head of the kitten was like that weird plastic
0: hence the surprise material.
1: That was the surprise, but also the surprise pertained to like how many kittens would be in there. So like I only knew My friends, as well as myself that had it, we only had one that had three kittens, but apparently you could get like up to five kittens in your kitty surprise. But anyway, it was just one of those stupid like 90s gimmicky stuffed animals that, of course, I was like all about. I love to tell the tale of it.
0: Yeah, that's great. Yeah. What a good collection of memories (laughs) that we've recorded successfully.
1: Yes, most importantly. Stuffed
0: animal
1: memories are the best
0: kind of memories. Teddy bears, cows, and pow puppies. Would you tell us, please?
1: Texana you. Texana we. Texana, who?
0: Texana me. Kingdom. And Amelia, a doy, doy, doy. Arthropoda, I guess I live here now. Class. Insecta, hex on you, you hexapod. Order. Hemiptera. we found the true bugs. Family. Coridae, they predominantly suck sap. Genus. Anassa, a genus of leaf-footed bugs. Species. Trites, commonly called the squash bug. It's a major pest of squash and pumpkins and it's found through North America.
1: Oh, I wish people could see the gesticulation happening <laughs> when Mike does it. It's so- so gets me so excited. But also, I'm like, that's so cool that you took a, a different approach to a spooky Halloween bug.
0: Yeah. Thank you. I like thank that. You. Well, I was just kind of curious about it. You know, I was like, what animals like eating pumpkins?
1: Not a Meredith animal, I'll tell you that.
0: <laughs> oh, really? I like pumpkin. I'm
1: not a fan I am really not a fan, I have to say.
0: How do you feel about gourds in general?
1: I will say we've been having a lot of spaghetti squash lately, which I do really like. Very good. But it's not very squash like to me. No. As far as like squash goes, I'm not I I'm not into it. Like I'm not I don't cook up butternut squashes. I don't love zucchini. I don't yeah, it's not my thing. I don't like pumpkin spice much. I wish I did. It's like mint. It's like one of those things that's so ubiquitous, especially this time of year, and I just, ugh, not my thing.
0: Yeah, fair. I think know thyself.
1: I know myself.
0: (laughs) Well, let's do some tax facts.
1: Please.
0: Kingdom Animalia, adoy, adoy, adoy. (laughs) The phylum Arthropoda. So remember, within Arthropoda, we have subphyla. We have hexapods, the insects. Yes. Crustaceans, like crabs, things. Yes. Myriapods, which are like millipedes, centipedes, etc.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We have the cholesterolata, which are spiders, scorpions, horseshoe crabs, mm-hmm. and then trilobites, which are extinct. Right. Subphylum is the hexapod. Insects is the one that we're talking about. They're insects in three small orders of insect like animals, all of which have six thoracic legs.
1: Right. Hexapods.
0: Then we get to the class insecta. Nearly all hatch from eggs. Frequently, there is a larval stage, a pupil stage, and an adulthood, typically a four stage metamorphosis.
1: Imago. For all of you crossword people, the adult stage of an insect, it comes up a lot. Imago.
0: How do you spell that?
1: I M A G O.
0: Imago. Yeah. And then the stages are instars of growth.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: So the order, Hemipatera, True Bugs. Have we done True Bugs before? I think you...
1: I think we have talked about True Bugs because they're the ones...
0: With your marmorated stink bug, right?
1: Yes. And um, I think the cicada as well because you have to have the... This is my favorite. The requisite sucking mouth parts, right?
0: Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> And <laughs> we do have cicadas, aphids, plant hoppers, leaf hoppers, bed bugs, and shield bugs.
1: Oh, bed bugs are in there. Ugh, sick.
0: Note that popular bugs, alleged bugs, like the May bug and ladybug, are actually beetles. Right. And the love bug is a fly.
1: Yeah, and like we re- we refer to like lightning bugs as bugs. I don't think those are are those bugs. Those aren't true bugs, are they?
0: They're beetles. Lightning bugs are beetles. That's
1: right. The Coleoptera. Um. Yeah, and then spiders. We just love to lump all things into bugs in this country in particular. Right. Any creepy yeah. crawly thing is a bug.
0: And spiders are, pre- they're in a different subphylum. Right. You know. Duh. The infraorder order is pentatomomorpha. This is where stink bugs, flat bugs, and seed bugs unite. They're commonly called shield bugs because they have backs that look like shields. Yeah. Pentatomomorpha, Obviously, five. I guess I don't know Tomo. Right. But I would think that Pentatomomorpha is specifically referencing that shield back shape because it is a pentagon.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're totally right. If I remember my stink bug
0: facts. Then we get to the super family Corioidae. Corio-footed bugs and their allies. Now we're down <laughs> to 3,300 described species. We go to the family Coryidae, Leaf-footed bugs. This is a cosmopolitan family. They're all over the world. And they have leaf-like expansions on the legs of some species, generally on the hind tibia, which is where they get their name.
1: So is that like a like a growth that looks like a leaf on their leg? Yeah, it's
0: almost like on their shin, they have a sort of like shape.
1: They look like they're wearing like um, like shin guards, like they're soccer bugs. Right,
0: or leg warmers.
1: Yeah, or leg warmers, if they're flash dance bugs.
0: If they're flash dance bugs, exactly.
1: Cute, <laughs> cute.
0: Genus Anasa. It's a genus of bug. There are nine species. Species tristis, aka the squash bug. It's a major spe- It's a major pest of squash and pumpkins, and is a vector of the cucurbit yellow vine disease bacterium. Uh oh. They can emit an unpleasant odor when disturbed, and all of this leads them to just being the spookiest of the bugs (laughs) that I encountered.
1: If I were to see one of these out and about, I would probably be, I would just stupidly be like, oh, it's a stink bug because it has that shield.
0: Right. Same. Well, and when I was in Massachusetts, I encountered a pentatomomorpha Mm -hmm. and that was my thought. I was like, it looks like a stink bug, but it could have been one of these or it could have been one of the other ones. I'm not a bug expert. Yeah. So the adult is grayish-brown. It's about 0.6 inches long and about 0.3 inches wide. They usually have a row of alternate brown and gold spots along the margin of the abdomen, and adults typically survive for three to four months. Oh, wow. Now, if you're looking for an Anasa tristis, you can find one typically on various members of the gourd family, Cucurbitanaceae, But they are most often on pumpkins and squash. Some varieties and cultivars of pumpkins and squash are more susceptible to others. And then they found that nymphs can grow to adulthood with varying degrees of success on different host plants. Okay. So here's some fun nymph development stats. If you put a bunch of them on a cantaloupe melon, 0% will survive to adulthood. Okay. On a cucumber, 0.3% will survive to adulthood. On a watermelon, 14%. Oh. On a squash, 49%. And on a pumpkin, 70%.
1: Wow, so they these guys like pumpkin.
0: Yeah, they are definitely pro-pumpkin. <laughs> so let's talk about life cycle real quick. We have oval eggs that are somewhat flattened and bronze in color. And the mommy will deposit them on the underside of the leaves of the host plant. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they'll Cluster them close together, and sometimes they'll more widely disperse them. But either way, they will be arranged regularly. (laughs) After about a week, maybe nine days, the eggs will hatch into nymphs. The nymphs have five instar phases. They start green, about 0.1 inches long. Mm -hmm. And then with each instar, they get larger, less hairy, (laughs) and less green.
1: Ooh, they're hairy?
0: Yeah. Apparently. But it's not actual hair.
1: Yeah, it's some sort of bug.
0: Hair-like structure. Yeah. The fifth instar is gray with developing wing pads, and they're about 0.4 inches long. Then their next stage is adulthood. The entire nymphal stage lasts about 33 days. Okay. Now, I know you're wondering, how does this bug eat the pumpkin? Does it roast it? Does it just go for the seeds? Does it toast the seeds with a little bit of salt? (laughs) Well, they actually don't do any of that. They just suck the sap, which they get mainly from the leaves of the plant, but they can also get it from the fruit. Okay. And then as they're sucking sap, they inject toxic saliva into the plant tissue, Mm
1: -hmm. causing the
0: plant to wilt and die.
1: Yes. This is just like the stink bug, like an apple. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then individual plants, occasionally, let's say you're a family of squash bugs and you got to squash some squash. So (laughs) if you go to a squash field, you may collectively attack one individual plant or even a part of a plant as a team. Mm-hmm. But leave other parts of the plant or surrounding plants untouched. Okay. So I think that's interesting. That's sort of a way of managing your food sources, right? If you like deplete a single source rather than destroying an entire field, you know, yeah. it's a very focused way of extracting resources from a place is to, you know, move around selectively.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: So aside from physically destroying, the plant itself. These insects can also serve as a vector for the cucurbit yellow vine disease caused by the Ceratia marcusens bacteria. Now, this is not a bacteria fan club, so we're not going (laughs) to go too in-depth with this rod-shaped gram-negative bacteria from the family (laughs) Tercinaceae, but leave it to say it kills the plants. Yeah. Meredith, I have to tell you, that's the extent of my gourd insect research.
1: That's fine. I think, yeah, I think that's fun, though. Especially related to, when we related it back to our stink bug friends. Um, we talked about over the summer. And, yeah, I mean, look out, pumpkins. This is your time, but don't let it be diminished by the squash bug.
0: Yeah, I'm going to agree with that. <laughs> I think that, the squash bug is perhaps the most basic of all of the bugs with its quest for a <laughs> pumpkin spice lifestyle, 24-7, 365.
1: A different PSL.
0: Much different PSL.
1: <laughs> I like that.
0: But yeah, I mean, I think it's fun to learn about these pests, so-called pests that are destructive to crops and things like that.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah, that's that's it. That's all I got. I love it. Break time. Break-
1: Barney? Is that you?
0: Why, yes, Lucille, it sure is.
1: I hardly recognize you with... Is that hair?
0: Why, yes, Lucille, it sure is.
1: I mean, wow, it's very resplendent and luxurious, but... And please don't take offense. Why?
0: Us herons already have such distinctive dues. Why, yes, Lucille, we do indeed have distinctive dues, but that's just the problem. What about us herons that want to stand apart from the rest? What about those of us who really want to make a splash at the pond? Almost as if we are saying, Hello, fish. It's me, Barney. I have a sweet hawk, so I'm going to eat you and look great doing it.
1: Okay, okay. I guess I get that. So where were you able to find such a, um, niche product?
0: Why, Lucille, brand clubby, of course, and you too can get your own Hair On, Human Hair Wigs for Herons. They come in styles to suit every Heron's personality. Wait, did you say human hair? Why, Lucille, of course I did. Did you, for a second, think that Brand Clubby would use synthetic hair for their Hair Human Hair Wigs for Herons?
1: Um, I guess not. I'm just surprised is all. I just never thought I'd see the day when us herons would be walking around with wigs of any kind, let alone high-quality wigs made with genuine human hair. But I guess this is just one more time Brand Clubby has really gone above and beyond in anticipating our needs.
0: Why, Lucille, I couldn't have said it better myself. And you know, Lucille, I think you would just look simply ravishing in The Birdie, a low-maintenance, high-style wig for herons on the go featuring long layers and curtain bangs.
1: Sure, I trust your vision, Barney. So how do I get it?
0: Why, Lucille? It's so easy. Just log into Brand Clubby's product portal. Oh, and when you use my code Harry you will also receive your very own beak blinder mustaches for birds for
1: free. Oh wow! I'll log on today. <laughs> is that PSO pumpkin spiced oats
0: I also smell some Necco wafers it must be the spookiest Halloween feed bag
1: whoa (laughs) Necco wafers deep cut I like the chocolate ones so Jurgen from Munich asks how do squid and octopuses feel about having to share one name in German Tintin fish They're both called Tintin fish They're totally Different creatures I'm like Yeah What's up with that German
0: Also not fish
1: They're also not fish Yes But they're both So if you go to like Google translate And type in octopus The germ It'll spit out the German Tintin fish If you type in squid It'll spit out the German Tintin fish Like what
0: the fuck I just feel like the Germans are so known for complex compound words that mean very specific things.
1: That's exactly what I thought. And they're so, like, keen on classifying everything very specifically. And it just seems like a crazy oversight, right?
0: Yeah, this is some sort of, like, anti-mollusk conspiracy that we've happened (laughs) upon. I
1: agree. So maybe um, maybe we'll have to do a little animal expose or something. This will be, like, a deep undercover brand clubby I don't know five on your side.
0: The erasure of the complexities of the cephalopod population.
1: Yeah. So I don't know Juergen we might have to uh, get back to you on this but this is certainly a very interesting line of inquiry. If we have any German listeners I mean by all means please let us know if maybe there's something we're missing here but I'm just going on Google Translate and some other things we looked into. I'm not I'm not seeing the distinction. And there should be one. Avi.
0: Yeah. A little disappointed in you, Germany.
1: <laughs> so I guess the a fish position is we're not sure why, but that's effed.
0: Yeah. Ding, ding, ding.
1: Ding, ding, ding.
0: Paul from Burbank asks, Boo, happy Halloween, animal friends. Just one quick question. I hope you know the answer. What's the most popular Halloween costume for pumas?
1: This question, I feel like, is so timely because just a couple nights ago, I watched the mystery science theater treatment of the, like, 1960s Italian B-movie called Puma Man. Whoa. Puma Man happened to be this, like, really derpy superhero, and he wore kind of like a... um I don't know if you can just think of, like, a 70s, like, kind of, you know, those, like, capes that men wore or kind of, like, ponchos almost. I don't know. I'd have to just, I don't really know how to describe it. But I would say a puma would dress up as Puma Man for Halloween. Wow. (laughs) So we'd wear, like, kind of bell bottoms and, like, one of those, like, 60s kind of dashiki-esque poncho. I'm definitely doing some really bad conflation of clothing styles from other cultures, but I'm not really sure. It's like kind of like a weird cape poncho-y thing. I'm not sure. Uh Uh-huh. And it had like gold trim around it. It was just very 60s and very stupid. Well,
0: there you go. (laughs) I guess the question is, what is the most popular Halloween costume for Puma? So perhaps it's that. I also think that a popular costume would be Black Panther. Yes, yes which is kind of an extension of the superhero motif. So maybe just superheroes in general. Yeah. And then beyond that, I don't know, maybe like a vampire or something. (laughs) Or a mummy. That would be a good one.
1: Or a witch.
0: But I do think that the most popular Halloween costume would be...
1: Yeah. Puma Man, Black Panther, or otherwise. Yeah.
0: Wonder Woman, maybe. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Wonder Woman.
0: Or the Hulk.
1: (laughs) A Puma dressed up as the Hulk.
0: With Hulk paws instead of Hulk hands.
1: Oh, cute. Well, I guess a fish position.
0: Ding, ding, ding.
1: Ding, ding, ding. All right. So our last question comes from Callie in Houston, who wants to know, if you were playing hide and seek with a hippo, where do you think they would try to hide?
0: In my heart.
1: Oh, beautiful answer. For sure. They're so sweet. (laughs) By sweet, I mean like one of the most vicious creatures in the world. But see, I went a lot more literal with it. But I like your sentimental take. I was like, they would just like hide in their their pond,
0: right? Underwater. Hippos
1: love being underwater, uh-huh. and I certainly am not about to get into some murky pond water with a vicious hippo. Despite the fact that we are playing a consensual game of hide and seek,
0: a presumed consensual. Hide-
1: I'm not gonna risk it. Yeah. To find them, I think they're just always gonna win hide and seek.
0: Probably. They seem to be pretty good. Yeah. Although, I mean, they're so big, it's hard to hide. But I just wouldn't want to... I don't know. I'd be weary <laughs> getting in that murky water.
1: I do like the idea of one trying to, like, not realizing its size, but trying to hide behind, like, a like an acacia tree.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's pretty fun.
1: Like, they think they're hidden because they can't see you.
0: Right. But you can definitely <laughs> see them. Yeah, I like yeah.
1: that, too.
0: Oh. But we're assuming for the purpose of Callie's question that this hippo is an accomplished hide-and-seeker. Yes. So, yeah, so we're saying in the pond is the physical place, but in the intellectual emotional place is in our hearts.
1: In our hearts. Definitely. Well, ding, ding, ding. fish
0: position. Ding, ding, ding. Keep the questions coming. AnimalFanClubPod at gmail.com
1: We sure love to hear from you.
0: And I'm just going to plug my other project that's recently released yes it's called the world to come it's a new musical podcast experience that i've made with some of my friends and i'm very happy with it i'm very proud of it and i'm very happy that i was able to do it because i had a year's worth experience making this podcast with meredith yeah and that gave me the skills to do another project and it's out now so check it out the world to come The Instagram is W2C Musical. It's also the same on Twitter and Facebook. And uh, there's links on the Animal Fan Club Instagram page. And you can get it wherever you're listening to this podcast right now.
1: Ooh, and it's, there's a lot of animals in it, right? Or animal stuff in it?
0: There's some references to animals. It's sort of set in a post-apocalyptic New York City experience. Okay. So they do talk about rats and silverfish and yes. various creatures. But it's mostly a story about humans. Okay. Gotcha. With some songs in there, too. Right on. Well, have a great week in animals and... Uh, I guess I'll see you next week, Meredith.
1: Yeah. Check out World to Come, everybody.
0: Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences.
1: Send us your listener feedback questions to AnimalFanClubPod at gmail.com.
0: Follow us on Instagram at AnimalFanClubPod at Meredith MeredithJurgens and at Mike underscore Luno.
1: And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our
0: show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal Fan Club.